today, we're going to go through the latest article I just published on my free newsletter, The Macro Compass. The article is named A Chat with the Top Macro Hedge Funds. And the idea is to give you guys a peek over the shoulders of the best in class, and we'll do it together. So this week felt to me like the good old days. I was in London for some conferences to meet clients and friends working for the top macro hedge funds in the world. These guys are very sophisticated investors. They deploy a lot of tools, a lot of analysis to come up with trade ideas, but they excel at it because they're humble about markets. They always wonder whether there is really a good risk reward in a trade, whether macro thesis could be actually wrong. And so far, the Macro Compass has always been about sharing my never-ending macro learning journey with you guys. But today, I want, you, I want to have a peek over the shoulders of the top macro hedge fund managers together with you. So this piece actually will uncover the main thinking and the market musings of three influential macro hedge fund managers, which I won't name, but they are managing money for the largest and most influential macro hedge funds um, in the business, and also summarize the main implications for portfolio locations and tactical trade ideas. So the first is the CIO of a macro rates and credits focused hedge funds. This is a European gentleman. He has a long history in, in strategy and fund management. And when I show up to, uh, to his uh, room, he says, first question is, Alf, where is the trade? And I actually love this because you can chat all you want about macro narratives, but where is that good risk reward trade that we all look for? Now, let's discuss this backdrop first. From a macro perspective, he sees the world healing from inflationary pressures. There are a couple of reasons why. The global supply chain is easing, core goods inventories are very large, while new orders are weakening, and there is a big deleveraging going on in China, which is also likely to keep that kind of demand engine, the Chinese demand engine, at bay. And all of this is very disinflationary, he argues. And at that point, I come up with a chart, and I, and I show him the chart that you can see now on the screen, that shows that markets are already implying a sharp drop in US inflation ahead. Actually, they're implying a 5-plus percent drop in US CPI over a short period of time, over the next four to six quarters already. And to find a similar market-implied inflation drop, market-priced inflation drop over a 12- to 15-month period, you have to go back all the way to 2008. So I asked him, basically, this is already priced in, right? And he agrees. His point, indeed, is that investing isn't like painting on a white canvas. You always should compare your subjective assessment of scenarios against what the market is pricing in. And if your thesis right now is that inflation is going to slow down, well, that's kind of priced in. Where he disagrees with the markets is that the labor market will actually take a bigger hit than priced in and earlier than expected. Now, I want to add a note from my side here. I think the bull case for the housing market ahead is a total freeze. And that's the bull case. Now, why do I say that? New marginal buyers are basically priced out of the market. It's an affordability problem. Sellers will try to be on hold for as long as they can in order to hit the, to avoid hitting a lower bid on the sales they're planning. Now, what this means is that the market will probably come to a total freeze, but also means that plenty of pain for housing-related job creation. The math is very simple. So given the demographics and the labor force growth, the US needs to add roughly 90 to 100K jobs a month to keep unemployment stable. Now, if you think about housing-related activity, brokers, construction, furniture shops, all of that, they account for almost 20% of US GDP and over 12 million jobs. Now, if the housing market comes to a complete freeze 
and all other sectors just slow towards their normal trend job creation, and only even 10% of real estate jobs are lost, you are looking at US non-farm payrolls carrying a negative sign in front of them in a few quarters. And the chart you can see now on the screen where the US National Association of Home Builders Index uh, inverted against the unemployment rate shows that US unemployment rate by late 2023 should reach actually 7% is a very important chart. The housing market is the business cycle. So he says, look off, this deterioration in the labor market isn't priced in yet. So I ask him, what's the trade? And he says, look, because it comes from the real estate market first, I think there is too much optimism still out there. And he wants to have downside trades in home builders, in REITs, real estate investment trusts, anything linked to the real estate market. Now, this was a very fun first meeting with a client of mine. And now, moving back to the second uh, portfolio manager, she runs money for a prominent um, family office nowadays. It used to be a very large macro hedge fund turned into a family office. And she is very much into the US dollar and the monetary plumbing. So the first, the main question that she wants to address in the meeting is, is it gonna be a death by a thousand cuts? Or are we going to be seeing a sharp systemic risk event somewhere? She looks at the world through the lenses of the euro dollar system, this US dollar centric credit and economic system that we have built. Now, despite the US and the dollar accounting for only 10% of world trades and 20% of global GDP, the US dollar itself takes the lion's share of global trade invoicing, payments, and most importantly, credit creation in dollar from non-US based institution. And the BIS at the end of 2021 reported that there are roughly 12 trillion of dollar denominated credit, bonds and loans that are sitting on the balance sheet of entities outside the US. Now, this is a very large amount and a six times increase in only 20 years. As long as dollars are organically flowing towards these dollar leveraged foreign entities, it's all fine. But for the last six to nine months, global trade growth has actually slowed down and dollar funding is not cheap anymore. Now, this is where she looks, the angle she looks at the world from, but she also thinks that the US economy is in a much better shape than many people believe. And actually for several reasons, consumers will be able to live with much higher rates for a decent period of time. But this in turn will force the Fed to keep pushing. And in such a dollar-centric system, it means that something will have to break. Now, where and what breaks, that matters the most for her macro thesis. And she says, look, we're in a world where what we are seeing is a death by a thousand cuts. You are seeing a lot of idiosyncratic events happening at the fringes first, Turkey, and slowly moving towards the core. UK pension funds, for example. But those idiosyncratic risks are definitely not enough for the Fed to pivot, especially with core inflation north of 6%. A breakdown of the repo uh, market or the treasury market, that would warrant an immediate turnaround. But she argues, and I argues, and I agree with her, that nothing really is broken yet in the dollar market, in the treasury market. Yes, there are wider bid-ask spreads, a bit more illiquidity, but this is just a function of much higher volatility. If you're a market maker and these bonds are moving 10 basis points up and down every day, obviously you'll have to be much more defensive. You're already crippled by regulation. You'll have to be much more defensive when quoting risk and trades to your clients, which means wider bid-ask spreads. This is not a broken market yet, also because the repo market is still functioning pretty okay. And she says, look, if it's going to be further death by a thousand cuts, where is the next cut? Where is the next big cut, which is still underpriced? And she actually thinks that China is the one and China will be forced to aggressively devalue in a 2016-like environment. 
Now, this was another very interesting chat um, with somebody who looks at the world from a different angle. Now time to move to the third influential macro hedge fund manager. He is a cross-asset relative value portfolio manager, very good at uh, all asset classes, and he always thinks in probability terms, which is something very smart. And he says that everybody is still using the framework which was prevailing over the last 10 years, and they are wrong. Now, this opening line from me is pretty strong, uh, and the way he justifies it is that he tells me that many investors are underestimating the power of fixed income volatility and mispricing the tails. Now, bond volatility is very important for market makers and asset allocators. As we said, if the deepest, most liquid market in the world is moving by 10 basis points a day, it's going to be very hard to take risks, to, to price trades very tight, to take risks. Now, what happens actually if none of these deals realize? If, you know, if just we stabilize at 4.5% Fed funds for several quarters in a row? You know, by December, very likely we're going to be at 4.5% Fed funds. What if actually we just stay there? And, and nothing happens. So what happens is that realized volatility will go down in the bond market, implied volatility probably will go down as, as well. And in the chart below, you can see, I charted the blue line, which is the market implied volatility for five-year treasury yields. On the right, on orange, I charted the forward earnings yield, which is the inverse of the PE for the S&P 500. So you can see that the more volatility goes up, the more the required earnings yield goes up, which means valuations actually go down. So a more volatile bond market is negative for risk assets, but a bond market stabilizing instead could be bullish on the margin for risk assets. That's his first consideration, which I found very, very interesting. The second one is on the tails. Now, if I ask you, what's your subjective probability that once we are at 4.5% at the end of this year, at the end of 2023, we'll be with the Fed funds rate either at 2.5% or at 6.5%. What's your subjective probability? And most people would, would actually answer that they attach a higher probability that the Fed is forced to cut back to 2.5% because something has gone wrong rather than uh, be able to raise rates all the way to 6.5%. The market, on the other hand, assigns the same probability to both events, 11%. Now, the same fatness to both the left tail and the right tail, as you can see in the chart here. And uh, this portfolio manager believes that in a world where we are much higher than uh, the neutral rate, reasonably much tighter than neutral rate, for such a long period of time, the left tail, so the Fed forced to cut rates to neutral to 2.5%, should actually command a higher premium than the right tail, but it doesn't in market pricing. And he says, Alf, this sort of linear thinking by investors that basically are applying the last decade framework might actually present quite some chances in this highly convex macro environment. So summarizing and uh, what could be the trade ahead. So for the first nine to 10 months of the year, being short everything and long dollar cash was a great risk reward trade because of the set of macro circumstances ahead and especially because the market hadn't priced any of those yet at the beginning of the year and i'm very happy that the macro compass framework pointed in the right direction back then you can go on the newsletter find plenty of articles all the way from november december 2021 to march april where we basically updated our framework and suggested to be long dollar cash and very defensive about anything else but today the story is a bit different. I remain overall defensive, but I also know that medium term, the risk reward has changed and bear markets often come with big vicious rallies. So yeah, let's summarize. The cyclical growth slowdown is underway, but is also well understood by market participants. 
so is the stance of central banks, a tightening stance, and on top of it, you know, cross asset every price and also volatility has adjusted accordingly. There is one thing that is still pretty mispriced, in my opinion, which is risk premia. As you can see in the chart there, the orange line shows the real yields in the US on the right-hand track. And on the left-hand, uh, you can see, again, the S&P 500 forward earnings yield. And, and you know, the relationship is pretty tight over the last uh, 10 years. I could go all the way back to 20 years to show that as real yields go up, actually also equities move up uh, in terms of earnings yield, which means valuations actually uh, go down and vice versa. So the story is very simple. As risk-free real rates go up, the opportunity cost for you uh, to basically decide to allocate your, your investments into a riskier asset like equities yeah, becomes higher. So you want to be rewarded for that. So your earnings yield, the blue line has to go up as well, which pushes down valuations. The white line is the equity risk premium, which is nothing else than the blue line minus the orange line. So the, the S&P earnings yield minus the risk-free real yields. And you can see that those are trading basically at a relatively rich level over the last 10 years, which compared to the macro environment we are discussing right now, what's priced across asset classes seems to be pretty tight. So one of the potential trades ahead could be a trade where you don't necessarily bet on a direction of the bond market or the equity market, given the set of circumstances we talked about before, but actually you go for a compression trade, a relative value trade between the two. So you buy bonds and you sell equities against them and you effectively bet on this risk premium to widen all the way up. And you lose money on this trade if real yields stay here or keep moving up, but stocks don't care anymore. And that is that can happen, yes, if real yields are justified by accelerating earnings, accelerating growth, and it doesn't seem to be the base case here. Otherwise, real yields can drop because central banks have thrown in the towel um, and equities actually rally more than proportionally so, which means basically Goldilocks is back. But for central banks to throw the towel in here at this juncture, it means that something has really gone bad. And if something has really gone bad, it's hard to think that all this aggressive risk-taking can be back into the market. The base case instead, where you actually can make money for, from this trade, theoretically, if real yields keep rising and soon some idiosyncratic risks turn into some serious systemic risks, you will require higher risk premia, so the trade will perform. Basically, equities will underperform bonds massively in that environment. Otherwise, if the nominal growth slowdown cracks the labor market down, the Fed, yes, at some point will be forced to soften their stance, which is lower real yields, but equities cannot rally because there is nothing bullish about an earnings recession. And that's one of the potential reasons why risk premia could widen as well. So this risk premia trade where you go um, long bonds and short equities can be implemented also relatively easy uh, with ETFs if you want to look at details of um, potential ways to implement it, depending on what type of investor you are, from which jurisdiction. You can check um, actually the article in the Macro Compass. The website is themacrocompass.substack.com. Um, and guys, this was all for today. I hope you enjoyed this virtual tour that brought you to have a, a virtual coffee, basically, with the top macro hedge funds out there. And um, thanks, as always, uh, for listening to me all the way through. And if there is one thing I can ask from you guys is if you can um, share a bit the word around the Macro Compass in your community. It's, uh, it's nice if it's uh, the more of us, the more the merrier. Talk to you next week. Mm -hmm.